listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning again. Dang. <laughs> Daylight savings time. I got more love from the eight o'clock, which was actually seven o'clock. Um, but it's good to see you guys. I hope you're doing well. Um, the, the day will get better, okay? We're gonna be fine. Uh, Sunday afternoon is coming. You should turn on the, the Players' Championship. Find yourself asleep if the stars align by God's grace, okay? If you have a Bible, 1 John chapter five. 1 John five, that's where we're gonna be. If you are confused right now and you're saying, wait a minute, we did that last fall. We were preaching a series through Exodus. You're right, but we are gonna be in 1 John chapter five. Proverbs 16 verse nine says that man has a plan, but the Lord establishes his steps, okay? So we had a plan but God established our pastor's steps, and I'm gonna let him tell you what that means, um, but you got me today. First John chapter five. Um, as you're turning there, let me tell you where we're going this morning. So far in Exodus, what we've seen is God is revealing to his people what he's like. So over and over again, we've, t- we've done this nine weeks now. We, the, the main point of Exodus so far is this is who I am, okay? Pun intended. This is what God is doing and what he's saying. He's putting on display his character and his nature. And there's been this theme that has continually popped up week after week that God alone is God. God alone is God. And now in these past nine weeks, we've talked about this in a bunch of different ways. And we looked at it from several different angles. But the point is that God alone is God. And so think about what God tells Moses. Exodus chapter three, uh, this is the burning bush. God reveals to Moses his covenant name, his character name, or or covenant and character. He says, I am who I am. And for us, that sounds kind of like a riddle. What do you mean? You are who you are, right? But what God is saying is I'm Yahweh. This is who I am. I am the creator God, the one who created everything and the one who everything was created for. I am the Lord, the all-powerful, all-knowing creator God of the universe. I am the one who was and is and is to come. His point is I alone am God. And when we hear that or we read this in our Bibles, we think, of course he is. Of course God alone is God, right? But think about how much this would stand in stark contrast to the culture that the Israelites had lived in for hundreds of years in this Egyptian culture. We talked about it last few weeks as we've been talking about the plagues, right? The first nine plagues were direct attacks against these little g gods of Egypt, Little g because they're no God at all, but gods of Egypt, right? You had the Nile God and the the God of fertility with the frog head and the God of the sun and the moon. And each plague is this God, Yahweh, revealing I'm God, they're not. They have no power. They have no authority over me. The book of Exodus is God revealing to the world, this is who I am, that he alone is God. And my point today is if he is God, if he alone is God, then he alone deserves our worship. He alone deserves our worship. And again, I think it's easy for us right now to dismiss that and think that's irrelevant for me because they say, well, of course he does. Of course God is God and of course he is the only one who deserves our worship. But my question to us to consider together this morning is who is he to you? Who is God to you? Is he the recipient of your worship? And let me clarify real quick because the question for us today is not, is he God or is he Lord? That's decided. It doesn't matter what you or I say or think about him. It doesn't change who he is. He is Yahweh, he is God. The question is, is he your God? Is he Yahweh? Is he Lord in your heart? And so you may be picking up where I'm going with this, but if you're not, what I'm getting at is, are you worshiping God or are you worshiping idols? 
right? Because nothing says happy daylight savings time than a sermon on idolatry, right? But again, I think it's easy for us to dismiss this as irrelevant and say, I don't worship idols. I've never participated in, in idol worship, right? Especially not the way we see it in Exodus, right? So think about Exodus 32, skipping ahead a little bit. We haven't been there yet, but this is a familiar story. So God, he, he rescues Israel out from underneath captivity in Egypt under Pharaoh. He hardens Pharaoh's heart, all the plagues. He rescues Israel. They're on their way out. God literally splits a sea. Now, we believe that is kind of like maybe fairytale or myth. It actually happened. We believe that the scriptures teach this is God's word, authoritative. It should be trusted. God splits to see his people walk out as they look back, wondering what's gonna happen to Pharaoh. The waves, the walls of, of the sea collapse on their enemies, swallowing them up. Israel is, they're going, what the heck just happened, <laughs> right? We have been, this, who is this God who's rescued us, who's redeemed us? And then as Moses is on Mount Sinai, meeting with God, receiving the law from God, the Bible says this in Exodus 32, that, that, that Israel, God's people, they get impatient. They get impatient that God wasn't doing what they thought they sh he should do when they thought he should do it. They get impatient, it says, and so they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, hey, will you make us a God? Exodus 32 says they get impatient and they ask Moses or Aaron, will you make us a God? And so they take all the gold they can find, other earrings and whatever they have, and Aaron melts it down into a calf. And the Bible says that Israel, the people who had just been delivered through a sea, they bow down and worship this cow as if that was the thing responsible for their deliverance. They worship this idol. And so we can easily dismiss this. How foolish of them. Why would they do this, right? That's, it's easy to, but, but here's the thing. We do it too. We do it too. I don't know where I first read this, but I don't wanna take credit for it. I'm just saying this is not an original idea to me, but when I read this, it helps make sense of this for us. There's a quote on the screen. It says, our golden calf is anything that we trade in our gold to fashion with the intent to worship. So the golden calf in our culture, our idols are the things that we take our gold, our money, our resources, time, talent, whatever, and we trade it for something that we intend to worship. And so again, what receives your worship? Is it God or is it something or someone else? And the question that I wanna answer for us today is where are idols? Does God receive our worship? This brings us to 1 John chapter five. We'll start in verse 20, just two verses. Bible says this, and we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And he says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So if you remember back in the series that we preached through, John wants us to know some things. And he says here, we know the son and we know where eternal life came from, right? So he says, we know the son, that's Jesus, and that Jesus wants to give us understanding, wants to help us see some things clearly. He wants us to understand the truth. And he says that this truth is not vague, it's not ambiguous, it's not like I can't quite get my hands around it. He says, this is the truth. This is where life can be found in him, in God. God is the one true God, he is eternal life, and we get to have access to that through him through Jesus, which means that access is not through our work, our effort, our obedience. It comes through the obedience of Jesus, but he doesn't stop there. He says, we are in him, and in him there is life. John says, this is why Jesus came. He came so that we can know him and know that we belong to him, because when you understand that you belong to the one true God, 
Because of Jesus, when you understand that you belong to the one true God, it produces in you what the Bible calls eternal life. Eternal life. This word eternal, it means lasting forever. It's without begin, it's without end, it is unlimited. Unlimited life, okay? The problem is in our culture, when we hear unlimited, we think, oh yeah, you have as much data as you want, but if you use too much, we're gonna slow you down to the point where you're gonna hate yourself if you keep using it. That's how we think about unlimited. But that's not, that's not the, the point here, eternal life, right? And so here's how I like to think about it. We've all had days in our lives where you're just going about your business, on the way home from work, or on the way to school, or just at home, watching TV, whatever, and you have the thought, just kind of bubbles to the surface, and you say, is this it? Is this all that life has to offer me? And you're not looking for that. You're not looking to feel that way or to think that thing, but that thought just kind of bubbles to the surface. You think, is this all that life has to offer? What John is talking about when he says, in him is life, he is the true God, he is eternal life, he's talking about the complete opposite of that feeling. This life is infinite in every way. It goes on and on. It has no beginning or end. It never leaves you bored, never leaves you wanting more or wondering, is this it? This is what Jesus came to give you. And John wants us to know where where the life that satisfies is found. He says that, this is where that life is found. You're all looking for it. Here's where it is, Jesus. Belonging to God as a son or daughter because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And then he says something, that makes sense. That makes sense. If you read this letter, that makes sense. That's how he would end it, verse 20. What doesn't make sense is verse 21. Then he, because he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's unexpected. And I'll explain this more, but he's making this connection between idolatry or worshiping anything other than God and Jesus coming to show us the one true God. He says, his point is, life is found here, not here, quit going here. That's what he's saying. John says, this is the one true God. This is why Jesus came to show us who he is, to show us all that he has accomplished for us, that he's invited us into belonging to the family of God. And he finishes his letter here, verse 21, keep yourself from idols because he knows all that is at stake. All that is at stake for us. Understanding that we are welcomed and completely belong to God as children because of Jesus, that is where life is found. And he makes this connection, keep yourselves from idols because what he's saying is, Jesus has made a way for you to belong to God, quit looking for another family. As if life is going to be better for you if you weren't a part of your family, you were part of a different one. He basically is saying this, God is your father, quit looking for a better father. There's not one. That's what he's saying. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So just so we're on the same page here, what is an idol, what is idolatry? Let me define it this way, it'll be on the screen. An idol, is anything in our lives other than God that we think makes us matter. Anything other than God in our lives that we think make us matter. And do you know what I mean when I say that? An idol is anything or anyone that we think gives us worth, that makes us valuable, that gives us a sense of of value. It's it's a good, it could be a good and God-created thing, but then we elevate it and we make it an essential thing as if we can't live without it. And, and idols exist in two primary categories, right? Sometimes you hear them called deep idols and surface idols. The way I wanna talk about today is, is root idols, which are deep, and branch idols, which are on the surface. Root and branch idols. So branch idols, these are the things on the surface of our lives that can be easily spotted. 
And it could be anything, right? Anything in our lives other than God that we think makes us matter or give us a sense of value or worth or credibility or make us feel successful or whatever you wanna use. It could be anything. It could be people. It could be a relationship. It could be your spouse, your kids. It could be your job. It could be academics. It could be what college you're going to, what college you went to. It could be success in any of those spaces. It could be a material thing, a house, a boat, a, a membership at a certain you know, club. It could be a new pair of shoes even. It could be anything. Branch idols could be anything. And, and the tricky thing is most people don't walk around in their life consciously thinking, I matter more because of I got a new pair of shoes. But what happens when you get the new stuff? Put it on, you go, I feel a little more important. I feel just a, a little bit more valuable, just a little bit cooler than I did before I got this pair of shoes or whatever it is for you. That's a branch idol. It could be anything. And the other category is called root idols. There's only four of them. And, and every branch idol in your life can be traced back to one of these four root idols. And they are this, comfort, approval, power, and control. Comfort, approval, power, and control. And I'm not gonna walk through each of these, but you can trace back every branch idol in your life to one of these four root idols. Let me give you an example of how this plays out in the world today. Let's think about the branch idol of a job or a career, okay? We all probably know someone who thinks their work is what makes them matter. We all probably know, not you, you would never think that. But we know somebody who, who thinks that their job, their work is what makes them matter, okay? And so it's easy to say, well, what's wrong with that? It's not bad to wanna work hard. In fact, working hard is actually a good thing. And if you, if you read your Bible, it is a good thing. God, uh, work existed in the garden before Genesis three, before sin cultivating the ground and keeping it. Work is a good and God-ordained thing. His intention for creation, what, what's bad is when we turn something good and we make it something we find our worth in. We, we elevate it into an essential thing. It goes from being a good thing to an idol when we start believing that we somehow matter more because we're hard workers. So it may not even be what you do, but how hard you do it, okay? And, and what is maybe even more devastating is we start looking down on people who don't work as hard as we do. So you get this branch idol of a job or hard work, and what we need to do, whatever the branch idol is in your life, what we need to do is we need to trace it back to the root idol. What is the sin underneath the sin? What is the thing that's motivating me and compelling me to feel like I matter more because of what job I have and how hard I work at it? And it doesn't have to just be one root idol, right? Someone on the surface that could be a really hard worker, but what's motivating them to work, to work so hard? Is it because they understand that God is sovereign, that Acts 17 says he, he determines the, the allotted periods of our life, meaning he's put you in this place, in this space for a reason, and he's given you your gifts, and he's wired you a specific way? Is it because you understand that, and you say, I'm doing this to the glory of God, I wanna work hard, that's a good thing, that's not an idol, or, is it because what they want most in the world is to have power or to be in control? And the way for them to get it is they work hard. Or maybe it's not power and control they want, maybe it's comfort, and so they work those long hours to get money to buy things to give them the comfort they think they need for their lives to matter, or it could be approval. And they work the point of these long hours of, of neglecting the people that they love most in the world to impress some people who at the end of the day they don't even really like. Comfort, power, control, approval. The root idols that motivate all the branch idols in our lives. And John says to us at the end of his letter, keep yourselves from this. Keep yourselves from all of it. 
And here's the reality, even though most of us know, at least in our heads, that, that belonging to God is the only way to life, don't we still have a tendency to drift into idol worship? Now we won't use that language. I don't think anybody in here came in this morning with, with, if I would have said, hey, are you an idol worshiper? You'd raise your hand, right? We don't use that language. But do we not drift into finding worse in things and people other than God? And, and, and honestly, how devastating is that? Think about what's going on here. The eternal son of God, who existed in perfect communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. The Bible says in Philippians 2, he left that place that he willingly took on flesh, that he died the death that you and I deserve, that he paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to the Father, so that we could experience the fullness of eternal life and we could know that the comfort that we want only comes from being approved of by the God who has complete power and is in total control. Jesus did this for us and even though that's what we say we believe, this is what we say is our identity and what makes our lives matter. When push comes to shove, we think we have to go around God rather than going to him in order to be satisfied. So when that thing wells up in your heart, that random question that says, is this it? I know what I need. How often is it God? The comfort you want, the approval you want, the power you want, the control that you need to have in your life, you have to orchestrate every little thing and you can't let anyone take it because it's yours, right? When push comes to shove, we think we have to go around God rather than to him in order to be satisfied. And like the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, we get impatient. God's not doing what we want him to do as fast as we want him to do it, so we get impatient. And we go and we say, what can I trade my, my gold for to something I can worship? This is what Jesus means in John 10, 10 when he calls the enemy a thief. He says the enemy's a thief. His intent is to steal, to kill, and destroy but I've come that, that you may have life and have it abundantly, eternal life. And he says this, I am the good shepherd. So the question for you this morning is are you following the good shepherd? Do you trust the good shepherd, right? The thief, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you to come back to the same wells when you, wells, when you feel the need for comfort. He wants you to go into the same thing over and over and over again that you know disappointed you last time, but you go back to it anyways. And you think, well, maybe if I just had a little bit more of it. We think like, my life's gonna matter, my life's gonna have meaning and value and worth if I can get this promotion, then you get it and it's not enough. We think, well, maybe the next promotion, if I could just get a little bit more, or if we get this much money, if the retirement account looks like this, if we could get the house at Tybee, or if we can move to blank, right? When we get to that station of life, then I'm gonna be satisfied, and you get there, and what, it's empty. It works for a little while, and then you're still, you're left empty-handed. This is the point. This is what the enemy wants. And in the moment, it looks so good, doesn't it? It feels so right, right? What's so wrong with working hard? What's so bad about me finding my worth in this relationship that I'm so excited about? What is so bad about me having to have something sweet at the end of every single day? After all, you deserve it. You work so hard. This is the lie that the enemy tells. He's a thief, he's a con artist. It never looks, or it, it, will, it looks like what you want, but it will never satisfy you. It is as if you are dying of thirst and you take a big glass of salt water. This is what I need. That's how foolish it is. And if we wanna keep ourselves from idols, we need to know what idolatry is. We need to answer the question, what is so broken inside of us that we would choose anything other than God to be satisfied? Paul describes this for us in Romans chapter one. If you wanna turn over there, you can. If not, it'll be on the screen. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 21. He says, 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So Paul just explained what happens in idolatry and he just described what has happened in us that makes us want to run to things and people other than God to be satisfied. And what this is, what he just said, is the opposite of what John is hoping and pleading and praying for at the end of 1 John chapter five. John says, I want you to know God and as a result, I want you to know who you are. And Paul says, idolatry runs in direct opposition to that. Idolatry is when you know God and you know who he is and you know what he's done for you and you know what he deserves, but you refuse to give it to him. And you give it other places. You worship the creature rather than the creator. And this is where we need to pay attention. Especially if you would consider yourself a Christian, a Christ follower in this room, because what Paul just said in Romans 1 is not they reject God. They refuse God. No, they refuse to what? Honor him as God, which is an important distinction to make. The people Paul are talking about is not people who reject him altogether. They're willing to show up to a gathering on Sunday morning. They're willing to go to community group. They're willing to give some of their money. They're willing to serve. They're not rejecting God altogether. They just refuse to honor him as God, to declare him as Lord over their life where he is the one who gets to call the shots even when they disagree. They refuse to honor him as God. It is, it, God, you can be part of my life, but it's still my life. I'm the one who's in control. Paul's point here is simple. Although we knew God, we did not glorify him as God. We aren't even willing to thank him, right? Why? Why do we do this? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Simply put, we do this because we think we know better. We think we know better than God what will bring us satisfaction. That is why time and time again, when you hit a spot in your life where you know God says, that if I want life, I go this way. But when you hit the spot where you go, I know God says go this way, but what I really want is to do this, that's why you do it anyways. Even though you've been disappointed 10, 20 times before, you still go back to that thing because we think we know better than God does. This is why we don't glorify him, why Paul says we don't give thanks to him because we want that glory, we want that praise for ourselves. When things go well in our lives, we don't wanna be like, well, praise God. We might say that, but what we really want is praise me. I sure did do a good job, didn't I? We want that praise and that thanks for ourselves. We are unwilling to let God call the shots in our lives because we think our way is better than God's way. And what Paul says here is really profound, but it's sort of hard to pick up on. He says we exchange praising the immortal God for the, the praise of images of mortal things. Okay, so here's what that means. If something is immortal, it's everlasting, it's imperishable, it's undying meaning you never get bored with it and, and never get tired of playing with it, never get tired of looking at it, enjoying it. It's not gonna break. It's everlasting. It's infinite. It has no beginning and has no end. And Paul says that's who God is and we exchange him. We exchange him. So when you exchange something, you know what you're doing, right? We've all gotten that gift from our great aunt Susie or from grandma. Before we even open it, we go, this thing's going back to Kohl's, okay? Because that's where great aunt Susie shops. And no shame on you if your name's Susie, I just made that up, okay? Um, 
But when you exchange something, you know exactly what you're doing. You're not an innocent third party in the matter. You've made a conscious decision. This thing does not have the value that I want it to have. It's not important to me. And so I'm gonna trade it for something that does have value. That is important. And Paul says, that's what we do. We believe in that moment. It's a calculated decision. The value of this is not worth what I could trade it for. And we look God in the face and we treat him like a sweater from grandma. And we say, no thanks. This is the sin that is underneath every bit of our sinning. This trade-off, this exchange of the truth about God for a lie. And the truth that he is the one true God. The truth that the most joy possible in life is found in, in living every moment the way he says you should. In relationship with him, because of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us, we belong to God as sons and daughters and we live our lives in this posture of God, I trust you. You say I should go this way, more than anything, I wanna go this way, but I know you're good. And so I'll trust you. And that means that we get to abandon the search for things that we feel like will make us matter. You can give that up completely. You don't have to look for value, you don't have to look for worth in a job and a spouse and kids, you can give it up completely because he says, the life you want, it's in me. I'm the one true God, only Jesus can give this to us, right? First John five says, in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ, that we are in him, which means that we are in Christ because of Jesus. When God the Father looks at us, we're daughters and sons, we're not failures and rejects, right? We're not sinners and, and shameful, but we're perfect. This means that God loves us, he even likes us, right? That his delight is in us. That God the Father feels about you right now all the ways that he feels about Jesus. His delight is in us. The question is for you this morning, not to answer for me, but to answer to God, is your delight in him? Do you delight in him? Because for whatever reason, for some reason, we're not convinced. We go, we hear guys like me or, or preachers, you've heard hundreds of times, you go, the life you want is in Jesus. You go, yeah, I'm not so sure. I mean, I know that life is found in him, so I'll take what he's got to offer me, but I also want these other things. I'm not so sure, right? I think we make three primary mistakes when it comes to this, three variations of the lie that we believe about God instead of believing the truth about him. And it, the, the three things are this, that God is glorious, we don't believe he's glorious, we don't believe he's good, or we don't believe he's gracious. If you haven't picked up on this, every single time Bill's out, I always preach a three-part sermon that start with the same letter, okay? God is gracious or glorious, good, and gracious. Here's what I mean by that. So if you struggle to believe that God is glorious, maybe you're in here this morning, you're saying, I'm not even sure God exists. I mean, I'm, maybe, maybe he does. I, I hope he does, I want him to, but I'm not sure he does, right? If, if, and, and if he exists, I have no reason to believe that he cares about me, so why on earth would I care about him? Many of us are in that spot. Here's how I'd encourage you this morning. If you don't believe that God is glorious, meaning he exists, he deserves your worship. Romans 1, verse 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, the fact that he's God, the fact that he's all powerful, it has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul says you don't have to look hard to see and know that God is all powerful and he's divine. 
Creation does this. Uh, uh, Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above, it proclaims his handiwork. What this is talking about is that feeling, the, the most majestic sunset you've ever seen or that, the feeling of standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. For me, it, was, it took me four days to get to the top of a mountain in India, in the Himalayas, and I stood on top of it and it was clear. God exists. It, it declared his handiwork. It proclaimed the fact that he is all powerful and he is divine. Church, our God is glorious. Or maybe you don't doubt the existence of God, you just don't think he's good. And what I mean by that is, what we've been talking about in Romans chapter one is you think you know better than he does. He knows some stuff, but not more than you for your life. This is the lie the enemy has been telling and wanting God's people to believe since the beginning. So Genesis chapter one tells the story of creation, right? God creates the heaven and the earth, the plants and the animals, and he calls it good. And then he creates man and woman as his image bearers. He places them in the garden and he calls it very good. He says two things to them. I want you to be fruitful, multiply. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it, meaning cultivate the ground, keep it, enjoy everything that I have created as my image bearers. You exist on the planet as me, right? Your, your, your dominion over all these things. And Genesis 2.25 says that the, the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed, which if there is a more beautiful sentence in all the Bible, I don't know what it is. Not because they were naked together, but because they were completely exposed and felt absolutely no need to self-protect. No need to hide, right? No secrets, no worry, no fear of not being good enough, no feeling of inadequacy. They were naked and unashamed, they felt safe. They felt seen and yet at the same time protected and cared for and wanted. In the very next chapter, the enemy shows up with this lie. What's he say? He comes to Eve in the garden. He says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from this tree? Did God really say that you shouldn't have? It looks pretty good. Don't you think that you would want that if God were good, if he loved you, if he was the father that he says he is? Don't you think he would want you to have that? In fact, you deserve it. You work so hard. Why don't you just take that? This is the lie from the enemy. He comes and says, did God really say? And real quick, this, the, the tree in the garden, this prohibition, the one prohibition that God gives to Adam and Eve, it's not about, hey, follow the rules or else. It's, do you trust me? It's an invitation to trust his good rule and his blessing in our life. He's inviting us to let him call the shots because we believe that he's good. And the lie the enemy tells in the garden is the same one that we believe today. We believe that God is trying to rob us, that he's trying to take something from us. We believe the same lie. Did God really say that, that, if, that you don't need to have this? Why shouldn't you have that? Why shouldn't you sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married? Why shouldn't you have whatever, right? Why shouldn't you? Did God really say that? If he loved you, don't you think he would want you to have it, right? This is what we believe, that we know better than God. The same lie comes in, and the result of, of our believing that we know better than God does, that we should just do what feels right, is catastrophic. We basically de-God God. We say, no, no, you don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. You say, go this way. I'm doing this because I want to, right? This result is catastrophic. Genesis 3, then the eyes of both were opened, where once they were naked and unashamed, now they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife, what they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
where they were once naked and unashamed, where they felt safe and, and no need to self-protect, and they felt cared for, now here they are. All of a sudden they realize their guilt, they're exposed, and they feel this need to run and hide from God, to self-protect. I can't let anyone, they have to pretend. This is the world we live in. Genesis 3 world, a world where we, we feel the need to pretend, where we can never feel safe. If anyone's gonna accept me, if anyone's going to love me and to want me, then I have to be like this, or I have to look like this, or I have to say these things, or wear these sort of clothes, right? And we're constantly searching and just grasping. And if it weren't from Jesus, that is what life is. A lifetime of searching and grasping and hoping and pretending. This is the world we live in. Paul says it like this, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. His point is, don't believe the lie. God is not trying to rob you of anything. In fact, it is the opposite. He is inviting you to trust that he is more than you could ever imagine. And not only is he glorious, he's good. So maybe you believe he's glorious and he's good, but you just can't believe he's gracious. Which means you know he's God and you know he's good and you wanna give your life to him, but you just can't possibly fathom that he would want you. You can't believe that he's gracious, right? You look in the mirror, you think, and I've gone too far. No one knows all the stuff I've done. I've gone too far, I'm too dirty. No one knows, loves me, no one would want me, no one cares, not even God, right? It's easy to feel this way. It's easy to, to doubt that God is gracious, right? And if that's you this morning, you have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells the story of a God who is gracious. God who's good and a God who's glorious. We could go to a number of places in the Bible to be reminded of this truth. I'm gonna turn over one page. It'll be on the screen, Romans three. It says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Real quick, this word righteous in the original language is the same word that we translate justified. It means to be made right, to be made perfect by God. Righteous is the active sense of it. And the Bible just said, now there's a way for us to stand as perfect before God. It's been manifested among us apart from what? The law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from your obedience, apart from you. I must follow all the rules because if I don't, then I'm not going to be good enough. The Bible says there's a way for you to be seen as perfect and beloved and belonging to God as a son or a daughter apart from the law. Well, how's it gonna happen then? He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says, there's no distinction. All of sin and all fall short of the glory of God and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation which is a substitute, an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. He says the righteousness of God is manifest. It comes among us in the personal work of Jesus. It's available to us by faith in Christ. That you can stand before God perfect, justified by his grace. He says, again, justified is to be made right, not to be made clean or to be decent, right? To be right in God's eyes is to be perfect by his grace, not by your obedience or your lack thereof, not by all your hard work, but by his grace. He says, there is no distinction. If righteousness is only available to us by do better and try harder by the law, then there is no distinction. We will all fall short of it. Some of us will fall shorter than others, but we will all fall short. The only way to be made right, to be justified, is because of who Christ is and what he's done. This is the gospel. 
This is the good news that Christianity is built on. It means that when you drop the ball, not if, you don't have to run and hide from God and pretend you're someone you're not until you can clean yourself up because you can't clean yourself up anyways. It means when we drop the ball, we get to go to him. We don't have to run from him. The good news of the gospel is that God justifies you by his grace as a gift. And my question for us today is, why would we exchange this? Why would we choose lesser satisfactions? That because of Christ and his work on our behalf, when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your failures and your shortcomings. He sees the perfection of Christ which means that God feels about you all the way he feels about Jesus and he's not disappointed in you. And I do my best to say that every single time I stand on the stage because I am convinced that if we would believe it, that the way that God the Father thinks about us is all the way he thinks and feels about Jesus, I think it would transform our lives forever. It would change our church, it would change the city, it would change the planet if Christians actually rooted themselves into the truth of the gospel that God loves you despite you, and that's good news. Let me read you this quote from John Newton. It'll be on the screen. It's always been compelling to me. He says, I am well satisfied that it will not be a burden to me at the hour of my death, nor be laid at my charge the day of judgment, that I've thought too highly of Jesus, expected too much from him myself or that I've labored so much in commending him to others as the Alpha and the Omega and the true God and the eternal life. He says, on the contrary, my guilt and my grief are that my thoughts of him are so faint, so infrequent, and my commendation of him is so lamentably cold and disproportionate to what it ought to be. Translation, you cannot think too highly or ask too much of Jesus. He's the one true God. In him and him alone is the fullness of life that we want. We understand that the, the comfort that we need in life is to know that we are approved of by the God who is, has all power and is in total control. This is what sets us free from our idols. We believe and trust that our God is good and he's gracious and he's glorious. And I wanna say something, um, and I'm pleading to the Lord to help us believe it. And I think this is John's point in 1 John 5. Your idols, your false gods, because that's what they are, they will betray you. They will uh, uh, break your heart. They will leave you desperate and wanting more, thirstier than you were when you came to them. But Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Church, he's the only one who can say that to us and mean it that what we're after and what we are so desperate for, only Jesus can give it to us. And so we as a church, we get to celebrate the way that Christians have for thousands of years in remembering that Jesus gave his life for us. First Corinthians 11, if you don't have one of these, there should be some men and women around. You can, you, they'll hand, bring some around. Um, we call this communion or the Eucharist, which just means give thanks, remember, right? And so what we do as a church, as believers in Jesus, is we're gonna have a really bad snack if that's all it is, but we know it's more than that. Because on the night before Jesus died, he's in a room with his closest friends and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he takes the cup and he pours it and he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you do this, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we take this in just a moment, I'll walk us through it, we'll do it together. 
when we take this in just a moment, what we are proclaiming that's true about ourselves and what's true about us as a people of God, we're saying there is no distinction. All fall short of the glory of God and yet the righteousness of God has been manifested to us apart from the law. It's not about us doing better and trying harder or how we have to perform in order to earn God's love and approval. We are saying we are trusting in the performance of Christ on our behalf. There's no distinction. And yet the righteousness of God is made available to us. Our God is good and he's gracious and he's glorious. And so if you can get that top piece of film off, I, I heard a lot of it, so you guys are already a step ahead of me. Oh, praise God. So we hold this in our hand and what we're reminded of is this is Jesus' body broken for us, the son of God eternal, left his place in heaven. He took the death that we deserve so that we can belong to God as children. God's, Jesus' body broken for you. This is the tricky part, don't spill this. Likewise, the same night it says he took the cup and he poured it and he tells his closest followers, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in his blood, which means we belong because of him. And we remember that together. Jesus' blood shed for us. First John, verse five says, and we know the son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy to us this morning to remind us that our idols will leave us empty. And yet you provide a way for us to be filled with all the fullness of God in Jesus. I pray that we would see him as good and gracious and glorious this morning. Help us to sing and worship and respond. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.